Hi, this is Robert Hooks, and you are listening to TV Confidential, and keep doing it. Ed Robertson welcoming you to TV Confidential. Radio talks about television now. Welcome back, Moosey Dreyer, in our second hour. Moosey Dreyer, Howie Borden on the Bob Newhart Show, the youngest cast member of Rowan and Martin's Laugh-In, and one of the few actors who made the transition from successful child star to successful grown-up actor. Moosey will share a few memories of some of his early roles in movies and on television. He'll also talk about his current work as a voice actor and as a director for the stage and for film and how his interest in directing began when he was a little kid. Moosey Dreyer will join us in our second hour. We hope you stay tuned for that. In the meantime, we'll begin our first hour by taking another deep dive into the world of Gene Roddenberry as we welcome back our friend Mark Cushman, Mark Cushman, the award-winning screenwriter, director, producer, documentary filmmaker, and without question, the definitive chronicler of all things Star Trek and Gene Roddenberry. Mark has just released the second volume of what is now a three-volume biography of Gene Roddenberry slash history of Star Trek that chronicles the various ups and downs that Roddenberry encountered between the cancellation of the original 79 episodes of Star Trek in 1969 and the triumphant release of Star Trek The Motion Picture in 1979. We'll tell you where you can find Mark's three-volume biography of Gene Roddenberry as well as Mark's other books in just a second. First, Mark Cushman, welcome back to our program. Hey, Ed, great to be here. The big takeaway of Volume 2 of... These are the voyages Gene Roddenberry and Star Trek in the 1970s is, for me anyway, it's it's an epic length story. And like every epic, you have a hero who goes through a lot of ups and downs and trials and tribulations. In the case of Gene Roddenberry, uh, particularly in the two or three years leading up to the development of Star Trek, the motion picture in 79, it took a toll on him. And uh, it is what you would call a mountain story. There were many obstacles before he finally climbed that mountain and achieved the great success. I'm so glad you put it that way, Ed. Because, see, that's one of the things I bring to these books is is my background as a screenwriter. And so I, when I write these things, I do them as movies in a sense. And movies happen in the moment. We, you, we take the audience there to watch the story unfold. And any good story, as Gene Roddenberry always told me uh, when I pitched to him for Next Gen and everything else, is that uh, a story is about a character with a problem, the biggest problem they've ever ex- experienced in their life and an urgent need to make something happen or not happen and a lesson to learn. And what a lot of people forget when they write autobiographies and their own stories is that they got to treat themselves as a character in that story who's on this journey and is going to have ups and downs and, and challenges like they've never experienced before and a lesson to learn from it all. And, and so when I wrote these books on Star Trek or any of the books I've written, I look at it as a screenwriter would. And, and Gene Roddenberry is our protagonist, obviously, uh, and Star Trek in his suitcase. And, uh, and he's going through this thing, and, and he's running into all these complications and all these obstacles and all these adversaries. And, uh, and he's a tough guy because he was a, a military pilot in World War II, through a, a pilot of bomber missions, uh, survived a couple planes going down uh, under him. 
and uh, he was a Los Angeles police officer before he became a TV writer, and then he was working in the jungle of television as a producer. Uh, so he, he had a thick skin, but he was also a sensitive guy to be able to write the type of stories that he wrote. And, and so he didn't give in easy. Uh, he, he stayed in there, and he fought, and he fought. But you see it in the, in the course of this three-volume set. You see it take its, its toll on him emotionally through his own letters and his own memos. And you can relate to that, empathize with it, because what he's up against is immense, the mentality of the corporation and they don't get star trek but they control star trek and and just what they put him through is 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 excruciating for me to, to have witnessed and uh, probably to some degree for the readers but there's a lot of up moments too and there's victory in the end so like any movie that's what we cheer for and hope for and what keeps us watching yeah he was, he was a tough guy he was a street smart guy uh, he was a guy with a lot of experience, as you said. He had military experience. He was a police officer. And so, as you say, he was very, very thick-skinned. And yet, what, what's amazing, at least for me, in reading these are the voyages, Gene Roddenberry and Star Trek in the 1970s, volumes 1, 2, and 3, is that there were moments, especially when you get to, you know, 75 uh, 74, 75, when Paramount starts to dangle carrots in front of him uh, and say, okay, yeah, we'll go forward with this. They go forward with this, but they don't really offer him a contract, and so he's kind of operating on faith, which uh-huh. is which to me, and you tell me if I got this wrong, to me, for, for a guy who's, who has already fought a lot of wars with networks and studios, it seems a little naive that he went ahead just going on faith. Well, but he loved Star Trek, and, and, you know, that was his baby, and he didn't want anybody else doing it because he was very protective of his child, and, and rightfully so, because as you see from the interviews I did for these books and from the memos and so forth, uh, Paramount didn't understand Star Trek, and the things they wanted to do with Star Trek were just ridiculous. Uh, so, you know, if, if they were going to continue with Star Trek, he wanted to be there and he wanted to safeguard it. Uh, he knew what the fans wanted. He knew what he created. He knew what it was supposed to be. Uh, uh, not just, you know, the characters, but the themes, the type of stories, the messages that it put across, the way that it put those messages across. Paramount just saw it as space battles. They saw it as flying saucers and laser guns, or in Star Trek's case, phaser guns, mm-hmm. and and so forth, and they never really understood the, uh, the significance of it or what it was the fans saw in it. Uh, now, he did have a contract um, in 75 when they finally said, let's, let's do the movie. And in Volume 1, we cover uh, the early 70s, which was the coming of the conventions, the animated series, the pilots that he was making, and so forth. Well, with Volume 2... Uh, now in 1975, that's when Paramount finally said, okay, we need to make a Star Trek movie. And what they put him through is remarkable, from rejecting the script he wrote with a form letter, you know, <laughs> and this is the guy who created Star Trek, yeah. and then bringing in other writers behind his back, and he's supposed to be the producer. So the contract he had was that if they made a Star Trek movie, that he would be the producer. 
and and he would be in charge of the script, whether he wrote it himself or somebody else wrote it. Now, being in charge doesn't mean he gets to do everything he wants, right. because it, you still have to submit it to Paramount, and they're going to have their opinions and their notes and, and so forth, but, but he's, the, in a sense, the showrunner. So that was his contract. Uh, but when he was writing the script that he was writing, there was no guarantee he was going to get paid, because the contract said, if we make the movie, you'll get this money, and you'll be involved in this capacity. And then they told him, go write a script. So he went and wrote a script, they rejected it. He wrote another script, they rejected it. Then they bring in these other writers, and they keep rejecting all that. And they put him with two writers from England who don't know anything about Star Trek. And you see his memos in there where he's trying to tell them why their script doesn't work and try to help them to make it work. And, and he just has the patience of a saint because some of the stuff he's telling them Anyone, if you've seen two episodes, you should know this. And yet they've been hired by Paramount to write the screenplay. Uh, so it shows how little Paramount knew. And, and so, yeah, he's working for free because he doesn't get paid unless the movie gets made. And Paramount keeps pulling the plug on it. And then, then what also happens in Volume 2, as you know, and but for your listeners, is uh, then they decide, well, we'll do it as a series. Let's bring back the series. And that was called Phase 2. Mm -hmm. And, and they had him buy 16 scripts and rewrite the scripts and, uh, and a two-hour premiere episode called In Thy Image. And they were building the sets, and they signed up the entire cast, with the exception of Nimoy, who wasn't available. So they introduced a new Vulcan character that Roddenberry created, a younger Vulcan uh, who was going to be on the ship. And, uh, and they were two weeks away from starting filming the first episode, the two-hour premiere. Uh, and Paramount pulls the plug on that. And then finally, they say, let's take that two-hour premiere episode and make it Star Trek, the motion picture. And that's where Volume 2 ends. And Volume 3 takes us all the way through the rewriting, the making, and the release of Star Trek, the motion picture. So, yeah, Volume 2 is a very difficult time for Gene Roddenberry because he's dealing with Goliath, Paramount Pictures Corporation. Mark Cushman is on the line with us. Mark's latest book, These Are the Voyages, Gene Roddenberry and Star Trek in the 1970s, is a three-volume history of Star Trek slash biography of Gene Roddenberry that chronicles the 10-year period spanning the cancellation of the original series in 1969 and the making and the release of Star Trek The Motion Picture in 1979. Stay with us, folks. We'll be right back. Volume 1 covers the first half of the 1970s, including the making and development of such Ron Mary projects as the Quester Tapes and Star Trek the Animated Series Volume 2, which we are focusing on this week, takes you behind the scenes of the making of Roddenberry's pilot Spectre, his other sci-fi projects of the mid-1970s, such as The Nine and Battleground Earth, the aborted Star Trek Phase 2 series, which Mark just mentioned, as well as the exploding Star Trek convention phenomenon that is going on uh, in the 1970s, and in many respects is fueling Roddenberry as he's going through this, you know, uh, <laughs> this, 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 this uh, torturous period dealing with Paramount Pictures. <laughs> Neutral neutralizer. <laughs> yes, very much so. While Volume 3, as Mark just mentioned, discusses the making of Star Trek, the motion picture, all three volumes of the Roddenberry biography were written with the cooperation of the Gene Roddenberry estate and include 
production notes, uh, production reports, ratings, vintage press coverage, plus many, many original interviews by Mark Cushman himself. These are the voyages. Gene Roddenberry and Star Trek in the 1970s, Volumes 1, 2, and 3, available through our friends at Jacobs Brown Media Group, as well as Amazon.com, other online retailers, Mark Cushman's website, markcushman.com. You can also follow Mark Cushman on Facebook. Let's go back to something you said a little while ago. Paramount knew it had a viable property in in Star Trek, even though they didn't understand what made Star Trek Star Trek. What do you think makes Star Trek Star Trek? Uh, the the characters, uh, which are brilliant. I mean, just, just look at these characters. I mean, Kirk is the flawed hero, based in part on Horatio Hornblower, the, the sea captain in all those books. And, uh, you know, he's an ambitious man. He's a good man. Uh, he's a driven man, but he uh, but he worries about the decisions he makes, and if he makes a wrong decision, that you know if people are going to die, things of that nature. It was a very well uh, established and fleshed out character, and especially as played by William Shatner. Uh, but then you look at Spock with his uh, his split personality. And that, that's why Spock appeals to so many people, especially young people, especially teenagers, is because when you're a teenager, you, you've got these two sides of your personality. You don't know what to do. You know, you got the logic and you got, you got the pleasure, and, and it's, you're getting pulled back and forth. And to see a character like this who's in constant battle with himself uh, was somebody that a lot of, uh, of us could relate to, uh, especially in our younger and our developing years. But but the really big thing about Star Trek was the the themes. Every episode and every movie had a special theme to it, a special message that it was trying to get across. That's what Gene would always say to me when I would pitch something to him, like the episode Sarek for Next Generation. And he said, "I like that. I like doing a story about a Vulcan going through senility. I like this. Uh, but what what are you trying to say with it? You know, he always wanted to know what." statement the writer is trying to make and it was always so important to him to have that in there and you see that in his memos uh and so like you look at star trek the motion picture and it's about uh, three three people in a sense two people on one other thing but three characters going through midlife crisis kirk's going through his midlife crisis about he's not a captain anymore and what, how is he important anymore, and, and what does his life mean? Spock's going through his midlife crisis about being a Vulcan or a human, uh, and V'ger is going through its midlife crisis. And this is covered in, in Volume 2 as well, because this was the going to be the premiere episode of, of the show called, the episode was called In Thy Image, and they carried over to become Star Trek The Motion Picture. So you see in his memos these statements about what they're trying to convey, and about these characters and how these characters are all going through the same trip at the same time, but they don't really realize it right away. But they do by the end of the movie. Oh, Veja's going through what I'm going through. Uh, and so Star Trek approached science fiction on such a serious level and such a deep level, way beyond anything Irwin Allen was doing or even George Lucas was doing. That, that stuff is all shoot 'em up and, and very cliched characters. Star Trek is really perhaps one of the most adult science fictions ever done for the screen, be it the small one or the big one. And Paramount didn't get that. And even a lot of these writers who were hired didn't get it. They're always, you know, Dorothy Fontana said to me, and I'm sorry for the long answer, Ed, but Dorothy Fontana said to me once, and she was the script editor at Star Trek and wrote some of the best episodes, both for the original series and Next Generation, 
and wrote for Babylon 5. And she said she was at a party once, and somebody came up to her and said, hey, we have something in common. And she said, what's that? And this is a young writer. And he says, we're, we're both writing for Star Trek. Uh, and he was doing a script for uh, Next Generation 2. Yeah. And she said, oh, really? What's it about? And he says, something like, the universe blows up. <laughs> okay, but what is it about? And, and he kept going back to this event. It's about this event. And she said, no, it's not. It's about how is Picard going to deal with this event? What, what major decision is on Picard's shoulder that he has to deal with? And, and what is the risk that he is taking to deal with this event of trying to get the universe to not blow up? And that comes right back down to what Gene Roddenberry says in all of his memos and said to me personally, is that it's about a character with an immense problem to solve and an urgent need to make something happen or not happen. In this case, make their universe not blow up. And, but it all comes down to the character. And that's what Star Trek did. They always put it on Kirk's shoulders. And he had to deal with these things. And a lot of these writers don't get it. They'll come in and tell you about some event rather than talking about the character dealing with the event. So that's what made Star Trek special and always will be. That's what made Star Trek special. That's what made uh, Space 1999 not so special. We'll get yeah. into the we'll get into the comparisons between Space 1999 and Star Trek a little later on in our conversation. In the meantime, these are the voyages, Gene Roddenberry and Star Trek in the 1970s, volumes one, two, and three, all available through Jacobs Brown Media Group as well as Amazon.com, other online retailers. You can follow Mark Cushman on Facebook as well as Mark Cushman and Mark spells his first name M-A-R-C, as opposed to Mark Leonard, who I think spells it M-A-R-K, speaking of Sarek. So uh, Correct. It's, it's all it's all interrelated. I forgot that Mark Sarek, in between the interim of, of the original Star Trek and Next Generation, I forgot that Mark Leonard was on Here, Here Come the Brides. So I, I thought... I yeah. just, I just, <laughs> well, I, he's also in Star Trek, the motion picture. He plays the King Klingon commander in yeah. the opening. So I mean, I you'd never recognize him through all that makeup. You wouldn't. You would never recognize him. But it's like it just goes to show. Look, actors are actors. They go where the work is. We'll talk some more with Mark Cushman after this quick timeout. You're on TV Confidential. Story Salon is Los Angeles's longest-running storytelling venue. We have live shows every Wednesday in Studio City, as well as solo shows, podcasts, CDs, and several books. Los Angeles Daily News calls Story Salon gemstones of narrative. Something new, funny, astonishing. Sunset Magazine says, Tales tall, tragic, and tantalizing. All of this makes Story Salon one of the most eclectic entertainment experiences available. You can learn more about us by going to our Facebook page or by visiting our website at www.storysalon.com. Accredited by Guinness World Records, welcome to Archival Television Audio, Incorporated. A peerless TV soundtrack archive, preserving the audio from television's first three decades, the 1950s, 60s, and 70s, the golden and silver age of television. For more information, go to atvaudio.com. Be part of our conversation. If you like what you hear, have thoughts on this week's program, or have an idea for a future edition of TV Confidential, we'd love to hear from you. You can email us at talk at tvconfidential.net, talk at tvconfidential.net. You can also message us at facebook.com forward slash 
TV Confidential, x.com forward slash TV Confidential, or at TV Confidential on Instagram. And if you're listening to us on the TV Confidential podcast, please be sure to hit the subscribe button. This portion of TV Confidential is brought to us by our friends at Front Porch Realty, the community of realtors in the Northern Bay area of California that is committed to finding the solution that is best for their clients. Whether you're a first-time home buyer or looking to sell or lease your property in Northern California, call Karen Strain at 415-886-7411 or visit frontporchrealtygroup.com for more information on how they can help you.